Geographic information is crucial to agency missions almost everywhere, and it's especially true for the U.S. Agency for International Development. It operates throughout the world, and for how geo and geo-information systems underlie development decisions, we turn to the USAID's chief geographer, Carrie Stokes. Ms. Stokes, good to have you on. Good to be here. Thank you. So tell us first how geographic information does underlie what USAID does. I mean, you have locations, countries around the world where development work occurs and is overseen and funded by USAID, but how does specific geographic information figure into all of this? Well, as you know, USAID works in about 100 countries around the world, and we are focused on improving the lives of people in those countries. We work in many different sectors, so everything from health and education, conflict and stabilization, environment and climate change, the list goes on and on with the many sectors we work in. So, The geographic approach to development is an important one that I work to promote with a team of geographers and data analysts in the GeoCenter that I lead. And the idea here is to get a full picture about what's happening in the countries where we work, not just in a sector-based silo approach. That is typically the way many organizations operate. So What we do with geographic information is focus on where the development need is concentrated. We look at where we're already working as an agency, and we like to understand how effective our programs are. So all of that means we need geographic information. We need to understand the geography of the places where we're working and the scale that we're trying to target where the communities and the people are that we're working with. And is your geographic information simply pins in a map? Because the way you describe it, it could be just, well, there's a poor area here, let's put a pin there, and then you've got a nice push-pin map of the country. In a simple form, the short answer would be, yes, pins in a map are something that everybody's really familiar with these days because we all use our mobile devices and it's easily accessible to see digital maps in this modern day that we all live in. But the work that the geographers and data analysts on my team does is a bit more detailed than just visualizing where projects are based. We do analytics and we take data sets that are disparate from many different places. So we'll want to know, of course, where project may be based, a health project, for example. But we want to overlay that, meaning we want to combine that information with what is the actual status of people's health in that particular community or that particular district of a country. So we will look at things like mortality rates. We'll look at what birth rates are like. We'll look at distance that people have to get to a health clinic, for example? Do they have access to basic health services? So we want to look at the spatial extent of the geographic influences that factor into people's daily lives. So yes, there may be a push pin here or there, but we're also trying to get the context in which people live. So Bringing in the different kinds of data sets gives us a fuller picture of what's going on on the ground. Now, in the United States, there is a rich array of geographic information on almost everything conceivable down to the sewer line level that's easily obtainable. What about some of the countries that are less developed, maybe not quite as open a society perhaps as the United States? What are your sources of information so that they're willing to say, yes, this is the death rate or the birth rate 
or whatever it is you want to overlay. How do you get that information? Well, we're sleuths, we're geographers, we're good at looking for information that we know will be representative of a people and a place. We look at demographic data. So the kind of data that's collected in a census, for example, some countries conduct their own in digital form and they publish that information and we will use that. If we can't get it directly from the country itself, there are other sources of household survey information that we really value. The World Bank publishes some of these. USAID, for whom I work, has been publishing an incredible demographic and health surveys data set for almost 30 years or more. And these are very valuable pieces of information to combine information about people's livelihoods, their health status, and then we also look at the biophysical information on the ground. So we look using satellite imagery sometimes. We will look at high resolution imagery and zoom into a particular area of interest that helps us better understand what the actual physical geography is like. So when we get to combine physical geography with human geography, as we say, it really allows us to ask deeper questions about what's driving human behavior what may be some of the factors affecting people's decisions about where they get their food, if there's food insecurity situation going on. So we're very creative about data, but we've also tapped into the open mapping data movement, as I will call it. There is a platform called OpenStreetMap, and we use it. It empowers people who have access to the internet to create data that represents their own local communities, geospatial data. And this data is made available to anyone who uses the platform. So we make use of this as well. We contribute to it and we use it. But half the challenge for us when we're going to analyze a particular area is in fact getting reliable, trustworthy data that we know is representative and timely. We're speaking with Carrie Stokes. She's chief geographer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So it sounds like the importance of geo means that you probably help inform what surveys USAID does in the first place in areas where it's able to do surveys. We do. And we feel it's important when users of information have an opportunity to influence what information actually gets collected. So the user base of this information is growing and growing. It's not just me and my team. We have a geospatial community of practice, as we say, all throughout USAID. We have about 165 people. That's pretty incredible, given that we're not a mapping agency. We're a development agency. But the power of geospatial data and technology to help us really visualize what's going on and where it's happening is continuing to grow. We're living in a geospatial revolution and the kinds of data sets that are actually available today compared to 10 years ago uh, when we started, well, 11 years ago, we started a geocenter. It's incredible. And every day there are more data sets becoming available in the public domain that we can use. And you tap into the government's own geospatial community, which is government-wide and military intelligence and civilian. Yes, we do. So there is a federal geospatial community. It's very vibrant and has representatives and interagency group from most departments and civilian agencies. And I'm part of that. I represent my own agency in that Federal Geographic Data Committee, as it's known. We also have another interagency group known as the U.S. Group on Earth Observations, USGO for short. 
because we have an acronym for everything in the federal government, of course. And I represent USAID with that group as well. And Earth observations kind of sounds like a big fancy term, but it's exactly what it says. It's observing the Earth from space. We also have in situ measurements, as they're called. So if you think about buoys in the ocean, collecting information about ocean temperature, ocean currents, being able to combine these incredible multiple sources of different data sets from around the world helps us better understand and sort of monitor the pulse of the planet. And this is especially important for climate change and understanding how our planet and climate are changing. And give us an example of, say, a USAID, suppose a decision is made, we want to give a grant to operators in this country to do this piece of infrastructure, say, and I'm just sort of making it up. How do they bring in the geographic information element? And do your people help them make that decision. Give us an example of how this all works from a functional bureaucratic standpoint. Sure. Well, one of the things that we do, you know, we, as I mentioned earlier, we have a presence in so many countries around the world to include many in Africa. And when we are doing our strategic planning, uh, so a five-year plan out as we decide what programs are needed on the ground, we do a major figurative landscape assessment and literal landscape assessment, it's important for USA to know what the trends are, what's happening, what's going on on the ground. What we decided to do five or six years ago may no longer be directly relevant today. We may need to pivot. So for example, in East Africa, we worked very closely with our colleagues on the ground as they were planning their, their making their five-year plan. And looking again at these different data sets helped to illuminate this youth bulge as we term it. So the demographic of an age group, age about 15 to 25, is a pretty critical group of people because those are the folks who are getting educated, who will be entering the labor force and being active in their own communities, becoming leaders in their own communities. But until we really looked at the data country by country and sort of zoomed out a little bit at the entire region of East Africa and visualized over time so we can make time series visualizations and see over a 20-year time span, how are the demographics changing? Get a sense about where are the people? How have they moved just in terms of population density? That information is critical because we need to know where the people are. Are they hovering around a Lake Victoria, for example, and seeing the population growth there, that's a key component of East Africa and the local and regional economy. So when we are looking at things like food security, for example, one of the analyses that we conducted in Uganda with the data showed us that the food security of a household is related to the literacy levels of the girls who live in that household. And this, believe it or not, is a geographic issue. We can see where throughout the country this is the case. So finding connections between sectors is sometimes illuminating for our colleagues because now we can make decisions about, okay, we were investing a certain amount to improve food security in a particular area. Do we also need to ensure that we're investing in improving girls' education opportunities in the same area of course, we all know that educating girls is important, but did we realize that the data was so strong to show that it affects food security of a household? So 
these are the kinds of insights that we can gain. Another example in Rwanda that we did was really illuminating. We learned through our geographic analysis that the Protestant community was reproducing and growing much faster than the Catholic community was. That's a real revelation. Well, it is because in our culture, with our context, our assumptions might have been the opposite. And this is important because the data and analytics can show us information, can show us trends, especially when we can plot it out geographically that can surprise us. It doesn't replace experts and our expertise and experience, but it can really allow us to question our assumptions to better understand what's going on and therefore target our programs effectively in the places where program is needed most. In other words, it's possible to decide to target development where things aren't happening if you want them to happen there. Or if you need to serve a population, then that's where you do do the development. But either way, you're not blindly landing these investments. Exactly. Yes. And in today's world, we have access to this digital data, digital technologies, high-resolution satellite imagery, uh, mobile mapping apps on our phones these days. It's just an endless source of information that USA did not have more than 60 years ago when we got established. And good old-fashioned topography is still part of the overlay that you need to know, too. Well, you can't put a pumping station there because it's a 75-degree hill. You are correct. Topography is part of geography. Geography is really the study of place and people and how they interact. So it's extremely important. You wouldn't want, for example, to be necessarily digging a well at the top of a mountain. You're going to have to dig far, far down. But if you're looking at a flat map and haven't realized that there's some topographic relief with ups and downs, hills and valleys, you might make a decision without really knowing the full situation before you get to that location. And just briefly, how did you get to this point in your career as the chief geographer there? So I started at USAID, this is dating myself now, in the year 2000, and I was a climate change specialist when I first came in. And I came in with a background of having worked in Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer after college. But I also brought with me a background in geographic information systems, GIS, as we call it, as well as the climate change science. And I had worked for a period of time for a private tech company that designed its own GIS software and hardware. So when I came into government, I was a little surprised that we weren't using, uh, even this was 22 years ago, uh, the technology that I saw was really unfolding to become more readily available on the internet. So I continued in my work on climate change, then realized we needed to better understand how to track our progress for our investments, not just in our climate programs, but in all the programs that we invest in around the world. And it really made sense to me to start putting this information, uh, collecting the location. We didn't have at the time a systematic way of collecting the location of our USAID activities. We today do, we have policies in place. We are getting the IT infrastructure in place to be able to collect this and be able to analyze it. But that process was, for me, evident that it was a gap. And today we're filling that gap. So I initiated some efforts to start mapping the work that we do and showing colleagues the power of that and got involved in the interagency geospatial community as well. Started a program with NASA, our nation's space agency, 
whereby USAID, the development agency lead for our US government and our space agency, combined forces uh, to create a program called SERVIR. And the SERVIR program is still going strong to this day, 17 years, I believe, at this point. And the idea behind that was to empower our colleagues in developing countries to get access to Earth observation information, mapping technologies, to help their ministries of health, ministries of environment, disaster response ministries, agriculture ministries, and allow them to benefit from some of the same technologies and data that we have in this data-rich country of the US. So that interaction with NASA, combining the climate change work and the geospatial technology work, really led me to decide, okay, now we need to focus on empowering our own staff in USAID. So the geocenter that I established about 11 years ago was really like a small severe hub, as we would say. It was just embedded in the walls of our own headquarters office in Washington, DC, so that our own staff could get access to the same kinds of technologies and data sets that we were promoting with our colleagues in the many countries where USAID works. Sounds like you really like this work. I do. It's great. You know, geography is the study of everything, everywhere. So it's never dull. And my team and I get to work across many sectors and we get to work across many geographies. And what we learn in sort of the big picture analytics helps us really zoom into local scales when we're working with local communities and our colleagues in country to take lessons learned from one part of the world that we see might be relevant to another part of the world. So it's a fantastic opportunity, and I love what I do. Carrie Stokes is Chief Geographer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive where you are. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while 
although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often Sometimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now. Available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.